0: In my house, we were vegetarians because to eat meat would have been murder. It was the worst thing you could do. But, of course, it was okay to have steak in the house to bring down my mom's bruises on her face after my stepfather had been beating her.
1: This is the Modern Law Library podcast, and I'm Molly McDonough of the ABA Journal. I'm here today with Joshua Saffron, author of Free Spirit, Growing Up on the Road and Off the Grid. His unusual childhood and experience with domestic violence gave him unique insight when it came to helping Deborah Piegler, a pro bono client he helped free from prison. Josh, can you tell us about your professional background?
0: I uh, today serve as the Deputy Port Attorney to the Port of Oakland in Oakland, California, where I'm the in-house counsel for Oakland International Airport. And before that, I was at a large international law firm called Bingham McCutcheon in the Walnut Creek and San Francisco offices. And one of the things that highlighted my my career both at Bingham and then at the port was a pro bono case that I took on representing an incarcerated uh, survivor of domestic violence, a woman who had uh, been convicted and sent to prison for life for killing Uh, the man who kidnapped her when she was 15 and forced her into prostitution and and battered her for many years.
1: What made you take on the Piegler case? Had you done pro bono cases before?
0: Uh, I had been doing a little bit of pro bono work. I mean, it was a funny thing. I mean, I was 25 years old. I graduated from UC Berkeley School of Law, and I was suddenly given this offer to work at this law firm and they were paying paying me an, an unbelievable amount of money and then it was partly it was unbelievable because my only prior work experience had been working as a janitor in a movie theater during college and before that uh driving a combine harvesting peas in rural washington state so suddenly i graduated from law school i get this amazing salary and i'm working in a law firm with uh you know perfectly white carpets and a drink cart with an unlimited amount of beverages and a secretary who says that she'll do my dry cleaning if I want and I don't exactly know what dry cleaning is but I'm sure that this will be a useful thing and in that environment I kind of felt like I wasn't being true to my roots and I felt a need to do pro bono work to somehow allow me to enjoy the fact that I was a overpaid young associate and when this case started, came across my desk, hey, do you want to help a battered woman get out of prison? I leapt at the opportunity, and it wasn't until I sort of sat down and really thought about it that I realized, of course, I was taking this case because of my own childhood experiences.
1: If you could talk about the challenges of digging so deep into your childhood and kind of confronting those demons uh, for you and your mother.
0: Sure. You know, the, the, the short story of my life that's told in free spirit is I was basically born into a coven of witches in the Haight-Ashbury in 1975, and then my mother took to the road and we hitchhiked across the American West searching for utopia until I was nine, living in a variety of vans and ice cream trucks and you know, communes. When I was nine, my mother met a charismatic uh, Central American guerrilla fighter slash rebel poet, Shaman healer, but who most importantly was a violent alcoholic. And it took us until I was 12 to sort of stand up to him and survive him and get away from him. And then I never talked about those experiences ever, not even with my mother, you know, who went through it with me and kind of felt like I had put that aside and that I was going to go and pursue the American dream. And I became this lawyer and I'm in this firm. And I'm now representing this woman who is in prison, maximum security prison for women, and I'm talking to her and I'm trying to get her to tell her story so that I can fill out her declaration and and get her out. And she says, so you basically just want me to tell you all the most shameful, humiliating things that have ever happened to me so you can put them in a public document. I'm sort of this naive lawyer who's like, yeah, that's what I want you to do. (laughs) And she, she had a hard time doing that. And I kept being frustrated with her. How come you won't you know, tell me your story. And finally she said, look, you know, you're a man, and the experiences that happened to me happened at the hands of a man, and it's just hard for me to tell you all these very personal, intimate details. I'm sorry. And so I began sort of trying to come up with a way of getting her to talk to me and to tell me this story. And finally at one point I said, well, can you you remember anything funny about your experiences with your batterer? I know that sounds weird, but something that's, you know, humorous. And she kind of thought about it, and she got a smile, and she said, well, I do remember – it was funny because after he was done whipping me, he used to whip me, he would get these raw steaks and put them on my skin to bring down the swelling. And I kind of smiled as well, and there was something that was so visceral and powerful about the memory of the steaks. And I, I completely broke through the attorney-client relationship at that point and was very unprofessional, and I said, oh, yeah, I forgot about the raw meat. And she said, what? You know. And I said, well, you know, I, I, in my house we were vegetarians because to eat meat – would have been murder. It was the worst thing you could do. But of course, it was okay to have steak in the house to bring down my mom's bruises on her face after my stepfather had been beating her. And she kind of looked at me realizing, hey, this guy isn't just my attorney. He's like me. And she began interviewing me and asking me a bunch of questions. And then we had a conversation and we kind of felt like we later said kind of like, you know, war veterans returning home and showing one another our, our scars. And after that, she sort of opened up to me, and she trusted me, and she was able to tell me her story, and I told her my story, and I, you know, had the material I needed as her lawyer. And at that point, I realized, you know, it was a strange circumstance where I basically finally talked about the experiences that I've had for the first time in this prison with uh, my client, but that's the way my therapy (laughs) began, essentially.
1: Do you think that made you more personally invested in the outcome of the case?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my father-in-law, who is a career public defender, you know, early on said, it. you know, he was asking me about the case. And as I was describing my client, he said, have you befriended your client? And I thought about it and I said, yeah, I suppose that I have. That's a good way of describing it. And he said, oh, you know, totally unprofessional, total rookie mistake. You never befriend your client, et cetera, you know. But later on, he years later, he Apologized. And he said, I see now that you definitely wouldn't have stuck by her side if you hadn't befriended her. And I think that that was right. After we had sort of become close and exchanged this information with one another, she became like a friend. So it was impossible for me to to just walk away. And there was a lot of pressure for all kinds of reasons to walk away as the case dragged on and took seven years. But at that point, I think we were, we were in it together is how we felt.
1: This is clearly dealing with a lot of painful times in your life as well. So why put it all on paper for everyone to read?
0: It was, it was not an easy one, of course. But once I was representing my client, this woman, Deborah Piegler, you know, we were getting all kinds of media and news coverage for her story. We were with the district attorney's office, so we wanted her story told. And we got approached by the San Francisco Chronicle who said, you know, we want to write a profile on the legal team, on the lawyers, which you know, would be me and, and my partner essentially. And I said, Oh, I don't want to do that story <laughs> because I knew that the obvious question would be the one that you asked me, which is what was your motivation for taking a case like this? And I didn't want to talk about it. And so, and I told Deborah. She said, "Well, why? Why wouldn't you want the profile?" And I said, "Well, you know, it's not really. I'm I'm the lawyer. It's supposed to be about the client. You know, blah blah blah." And finally, she she was she was very smart and she said, "Are you afraid to tell your story?" And I said, well, you know, kind of. And she threw back at me all of these uh, things that I had told her (laughs) to justify why she had to tell her story, which was you keep saying, you know, it's not my fault what happened to me, and I have nothing to be ashamed of, and the public will be better off breaking this taboo and breaking through this wall of silence and we will help break the cycle of violence by talking about it. And then she kind of threw the the race card and she said, you know, a lot of people think that domestic violence happens to, to poor black women in South Central L.A., not to, you know, white men. And I think she may have even said big and hairy, you know, white Jewish men who grew up at, with sort of militant feminist mothers and, and the ultra, you know, liberal, sophisticated left. That happened to you, too. At that point, I kind of, that worked enough to get me to talk to the Chronicle and they had a little piece that sort of, noted that this that I'd had these experiences, and it it changed things i mean there were attorneys who I worked with who couldn't quite look at me the same way again, and it was awkward, and then there were others. I'm happy to say the vast majority of the the people that I work with, who are, you know, you're a hero, congratulations. And some of them even, you know, of course, came and said, you know, I had something like this happen to me, and they told me their story. And then this movie, crime after crime, was being made. So we had a film crew embedded with us for five and a half years, and there's a scene of me talking about these experiences. So at that point, cat was out of the bag, and uh, I, I began showing the movie and talking both to lawyers and non-lawyers about my experiences. And it was finally at a screening in Los Angeles where after the after my comments, this guy came up to me. He was probably 45 years old, totally ripped, with a lot of tattoos, big guy. And he was like, yeah, you know, I'm in an abusive relationship. And I'm looking at this guy thinking, you know, who is abusing you? <laughs> you, you look like a cage fighter. And as he spoke, I realized, well, he was the batterer. He was the perpetrator. And he was saying... You know I never touched the kids but now hearing you talk I realize what an effect this must be having on them and I know now that I need help and I need to I need to to help to break this cycle and I can't control it anymore. And it, and when he told me that and I began to hear similar things here and there from other men in particular who who would would talk to me I began to realize well maybe there's more than sort of raising awareness, and there's more than free therapy on behalf of the, <laughs> the public, but I'm actually sort of in, in some way going to be doing the Lord's work by at least starting or expanding a conversation about these issues, and I have a duty at this point to, to talk. And at that point, I decided that I was going to write this book.
1: And, and have you taken on any other pro bono cases since, or, or done any other advocacy, or is your advocacy kind of through telling these stories and, and sharing these experiences?
0: I have done a few uh, pro bono cases, but nothing of the scale of, you know, freeing a battered woman from prison. Um, and I have been working with some with some frustration at getting laws similar to, to California's law, which which allows post-conviction remedies for battered women in prison in New Jersey, in New York, in Illinois. And I've flown uh, multiple times to all those states to to lobby essentially and to work with state legislators. So I have been doing that, but the, the vow that I basically took after the Deborah Fiegler case was: I'm not doing another sort of major, kind of impact-level case or litigation as a side gig, uh-huh. <laughs> as as merely a pro bono case, because it was pretty devastating both to my career at the firm and also to my family to just spend seven years and that amount of effort and not have any <laughs> financial you know, income coming from that. And so. There's a certain irony to that, just at the point where I sort of felt like, okay, I've become an expert in this area. I'm no longer doing the work, and I'm still looking for a way to sort of support myself to do that work, and I would love to because there's absolutely nothing like working with someone in prison and then walking them walk out of that prison because of your efforts. I mean, it's the most powerful thing in the world, and so that's an experience I would love to duplicate, but I, I haven't figured out yet quite how to do it.
1: I'm so struck after reading the book about kind of where you ended up and i I kind of imagine you you are too sometimes uh and i and I wonder what was it that made you uh wanted push so hard to go to school and then and then why you chose law school in particular
0: yeah, you know free spirit is a sort of about <laughs> um, it, it dwells in a lot of the difficulties that i had um but I think also paints that that redemptive arc i mean part of it was i was fortunate enough i didn't have any real father or or very and only basically one positive father figure and this was this guy my uncle tony antonio who was who is uh um, sort of this big uh, giant uh mexican-american guy who himself was kidnapped as a kid and um never was able to complete his education because of a lot of psychological trauma and phobias and clinical depression. and um, But we met him in this commune that, that I lived in as a kid, and he sort of decided early on that he was going to make me succeed where he failed. And so he always encouraged me, and his um, tenet of faith was, however difficult it is for you to eventually go to school, and I basically didn't go to school until sixth grade, you know, you have to just believe that education will get you out, and you have to just pursue that. And I think by sixth grade, I was seeing that absent an education, I had the same kind of work that my mother and stepfather were doing, which was pretty humiliating—manual labor, working in the fields, that kind of thing. And I didn't, I didn't want to do that. And I did, so I subscribed to this faith in the educational system. And my mother, to her credit, once I was in public school, she always felt that public schools were no place for kids. Um, that was literally something that she said. But once I was in, and and took to it she was very supportive of that path and i think it wasn't a certainty that i was going to go to law school but i saw you know when you live on on the, the margin or in our case sort of beyond the margins of society you're very much at the whim of what we used to call the system but you know we were on welfare we were subjected to you know arrests and police and you know landlords and landowners sort of harassing us and just you're sort of floating along powerless and i and lawyers were the were the one class of people that i saw who basically could there was sort of these knights they understood the 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 rules of the game and they could come out and protect you from time to time and they were really these sort of i saw them as, as you know doers of righteousness and they helped us from criminal law you know landlord tenant issues you know every once in a while there was this some kind lawyer who would do us who would represent us pro bono and I, of course, had a very skewed vision of what lawyers were. I, to this day, I still sort of t- am personally offended by lawyer jokes because I still have in my mind that lawyers are these kind of, um, you know, righteous people who who help the indigent. And that was sort of how I tried to model my, my career. And, of course, now that I've been a lawyer for over, you know, 10 years, I'm sort of understanding that that is not what many or most lawyers do, but I still have that as sort of a goal for what the legal profession could and should be.
1: Can you talk about seeking perfection? Your your mother was always looking for that kind of the perfect fit, the utopian community, and I'm curious what's been your measure of perfect or success for yourself and your family.
0: That's a great question. You know, absolutely. My mother very much believed that there was sort of, as you say, a perfect place that we would find this anarcho-syndicalist commune where, you know, cooperation had replaced competition, where barter had had replaced currency, and there would be no leadership, and there would be, you know, communal sharing of everything, and we'd all be hard working. And, it, you know, she spent most of my childhood looking for it, and she sort of felt like she found it when I was 12, and we stumbled into this commune by the Canadian border, Um, but at that that time, of course, I had moved on in my conceptions of perfection, and that wasn't perfect for me, and I think one of the things that's been a little bit frustrating is that there was a, a, a number of years after that where I kind of replaced my mother's perfection with the American dream, you know. What I want is everything I couldn't have. I want that perfect house at the end of the cul-de-sac in the suburb with the nuclear family and, and, and sugar and television and, you know, nice new clothing and cars that don't break down and running water and electricity. You know, that's, that's the perfect life. And I think I've struggled and I've been a little bit off balance for much of my life because, of course, I got to college which was this incredible coup for me And I got there and I met all these kids Who had lived the, my life of perfection They came from these fancy suburbs And they're like Yeah, I'm on antidepressants And I'm suicidal and <laughs> My my mother never loved me And you know I didn't make it under the cheerleading squad And I thought about shooting myself You know, whatever it was And sort of seeing Oh, you know, that doesn't provide happiness To all these people And at that point I sort of began to take a new look at my mother too because well she whatever you say about her she did love me and she did you know was supportive of you know whatever you can whatever you want to be you can be whatever you want to do you can do so i had a kind of had this skewed vision of it and then i i found my way back to to judaism which i'm like the unlikeliest jewish person in america because i wasn't brought up with it at all but i thought for a while okay well maybe this will be my perfect thing i'll find this community of you know, orthodox Judaism where they're celebrating according to this sort of heightened sense of morality and everyone's wonderful. And of course you get there and it's like, well, this, there's this and gossip and you know jealousy and all these other things here too. And I think that part of the legacy of my youth is that I still have this gnawing sense that perfection's a real thing and that it's out there. And a lot of my colleagues or most people that I know are sort of like, yeah, you know, nothing's perfect. You just kind of do the best you can do. And, that's life, you know. And I still have this kind of uh, nagging sense of like, well, if I tried harder and I, or I looked more, you know, there really could be th- this place. And that's a funny, it's a funny heritage to have. But I think it's one that I that I'm not going to shake at this point.
1: So, so what's next for you?
0: I have no legitimate complaints with being a lawyer. I'm, at the same time, I really feel that the call that I've been given now is, a, is as a storyteller and being someone who's able to bring to everyone in America and beyond, the stories about that involve domestic violence, that involve poverty, that involve overcoming adversity in an entertaining, uplifting way. So it's not like you're being preached at. It's not like you're being uh, lectured. But rather, you're reading a compelling, entertaining story, and yet you're sort of, to borrow a phrase of my mother's, you're expanding your consciousness about some of the world's flaws and how we can how we can fix them and make the world a better place. And So Free Spirit has been was an amazing opportunity to get to write that book and the response has been really wonderful and so i'm i'm hoping to write you know um a series of books about sort of my own experiences and the experiences of others and uh i would love i would love to do that and sort of combine that with uh pro bono work of the kind you were suggesting sort of advocating on behalf of these incarcerated survivors who've basically been forgotten by society and give them a chance to tell their story and and get them out and back to their families.
1: Thank you so much for talking to me. I I really appreciate it, and I look forward to what you come up with next.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It was was a great pleasure.
1: This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.